Well, thanks so much for joining us here on Cranfree Radio. My name, as always, is Bernie Wagenblast. Well, today I'm pleased to have Rabbi Paul Kerbel. He is the rabbi at Temple Bethel Mechor Haim. He's been there since July of 2019. Rabbi Kerbel, thank you so much for joining me here on Cranford Radio. Pleasure to be with you, Bernie. What I always like to do whenever I'm talking to clergy people, as well as other folks from around town, we want to get to know the person. And the best place to start with most people is their growing up years. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up. You did not grow up in New Jersey, right? No, but my family settled, my great-grandparents settled in Atlantic City, New Jersey in 1906. And my paternal grandparents and my father were born in Atlantic City and then moved to Philadelphia. And my brother and I were born in Philadelphia. So we are from nearby, but then we moved (laughs) away for many years. (laughs) And part of your growing up years were spent in New Orleans, right? Yeah. So uh, after uh, my parents left Philadelphia, so my father became the director of the Jewish Family Service of New Orleans in the early 60s. And we lived there for five years. And then we moved to Rochester, New York. And it's in Rochester, New York, where I got my formative, you know, elementary and middle school Jewish education and uh, celebrated my bar mitzvah there. And it was at that time, we were part of a very large congregation that I started to think about becoming a rabbi. So about 14 years old is kind of when I thought that's what I should do with my life. So right around the time of your bar mitzvah then, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that played a a significant role in the decision to become a rabbi? Yeah, I think the synagogue and then there was a new rabbi who came the next year. And I said, I want to be like that rabbi. He was very dynamic. He didn't stand at the pulpit. He used and and then this is this is 50 years ago so it's mm-hmm. it's uh it was novel at the time for a rabbi to put on a lavalier microphone and walk around on the steps of the pulpit that time was uh was the early 70s and there was a lot going on in the world you know the vietnam war and the the recent I meaning a couple of years before the assassination of dr martin luther king and robert kennedy And, you know, there's a lot of political ferment in the United States. And the rabbi gave very meaningful sermons and was very dynamic. I said, I'd like to try to be like him. (laughs) Well, in addition to the influence your rabbi had on your life, your parents also have been heavily involved in Jewish affairs in various ways, right? Yeah, so my father was the director of the Jewish Federation in Rochester, associate director. So a Jewish Federation in each community here in New Jersey, it's the Metro West Federation in our area, is really like the United Way of the Jewish community. It both raises money from the Jewish community, and then the money is allocated to support local Jewish needs, like Jewish Homes for the Aged, Jewish Day Schools, Jewish Family Services, the JCCs. And also sends money to Israel to be used to help bring new immigrants to Israel, to provide for Jewish education around the world, to create partnerships with local synagogues. Like in Cranford, we have an Israeli emissary who is part of the Jewish Federation, young people in their late teens who come here to represent Israel and teach our children about Israel. So a federation does that kind of work. So I grew up in a home that was very involved Jewishly uh, and communally. 
uh, in terms of the larger Jewish community. And it was inculcated in me at a very young age to care about Israel and to, to care about the Jewish people wherever they lived. Since we're talking about generations, we talked about your parents, but some of your children are also involved in various Jewish organizations. Is that correct? My middle son, Judah, is actually in Israel today uh, on a rabbinical mission. He became a rabbi a few years ago, and he has a congregation in Queens. My younger son, who's now in law school, worked for a major Jewish organization until a few months ago when he started law school. Yeah, so our family is very Jewishly involved, and our daughters-in-law's parents are also very Jewishly involved. It's kind of like we call it the family business. <laughs> As I mentioned in the opening, you've been in Cranford at the Temple since July of 2019. What attracted you to apply for the position, so to speak, at the Cranford Congregation? My wife and I had moved up from Atlanta, Georgia, where I was an associate rabbi of a large synagogue for 12 years. We moved up for two reasons. One is my mother-in-law, who was then 91, eight years ago, needed some extra, you know, more attention and needed us to be closer. And two of our three children lived in Manhattan. And so we thought it was time to move north. Uh, and I served the congregation for three years on Long Island and then was asked to be an interim rabbi, associate rabbi in Closter, New Jersey. And it was while I was in Closter that I began, uh, which was just a one-year uh, appointment to help out a congregation, help out a senior rabbi, that I received a phone call to consider coming to Cranford. And there was an opportunity again to become an interim rabbi. And that interim position morphed into a permanent position because the congregation felt I was a good fit mm -hmm. for the congregation. So this is now my fifth year. I'm in the middle of my fifth year at the congregation. I always like to ask this, particularly of clergy people, because they do move around and have experiences in a lot of different types of communities. What are some of your observations about Cranford after you've moved here? Well, Cranford is very unique. First of all, Cranford itself is a real town, right? There are towns in New Jersey and everywhere else where people live there, but you don't feel the sense of community that you really feel here. There's a very strong culture in Cranford, a strong township, strong interfaith group, strong clergy association. The school system's very good, very close inner relationships between leaders of the various parts of the community. And as you know, we have a number of programs that we do. We have a Martin Luther King service, which will be in January. We just had our interfaith Thanksgiving service. We have the community has a 9-11 service. These are hallmarks of a very engaged town. Mm -hmm. I didn't know all of that before I got here, but it became very clear that Cranford is a very unique community. And the synagogue goes back 106 years in Cranford. Um, I would say Jews have always been a minority in our community, but a very active minority. The synagogue, our building, our current building is uh, 62 years old. Before that, we were in other locations in Cranford. But um, clearly, there has always been a strong Jewish community here. And now we see growth because of COVID and because of natural migration of people 
who live in apartments either in, uh, let's say, Jersey City or Hoboken or live in Manhattan, and they want a home with a lawn and a backyard, Cranford has been a very popular place. And there are just literally new people moving in all the time that we are seeing at the temple. One of the ways that you've become involved with Cranford is through the Clergy Council, and you're currently serving as the chair of the Clergy Council. Tell us a little bit about the Clergy Council, please. So the Clergy Council, I, I don't know much of the history, but I just know it's a very strong group, and it works side by side with the Interfaith Council, which is headed by Cindy Hannon, who's a member of St. Michael's. And we meet every May or June to plan out the year, and most of our programs are together. We do together, hand in hand. Uh, it's a wonderful group of people. Not every clergy member who has a church in Cranford is part of the group, but most are. And we like being with each other. And we, we're, we're truly friends and look out for each other. One of the things I've thought interesting about the Clergy Council is you have people from obviously different faiths, you may have some people who come from a, a more conservative background, others who come from a more liberal background. In this country, one of the things we've been dealing with is division. Maybe we can learn a little bit from the clergy council. How do you overcome those divisions in terms of some people having some beliefs, other people's having different beliefs in, in that kind of a setting? Well, uh, clergy, of course, you know, walk a very difficult tightrope because in any congregation, whether it's mine or or any of the Christian churches, you have people of different political beliefs, uh, and those beliefs have become a little bit more sensitive, and there is less dialogue and there is less understanding of people on both sides toward each other. So it's difficult for clergy, I think, to navigate how you can speak about any topic, whether it's about our country, whether it's about a world issue that will not, you know, upset someone in the congregation. On the other hand, I was taught, I don't remember which rabbi said this, a rabbi once said something like, if your congregation always likes you, then you're not doing a good job. Because <laughs> if you're not you know, and I think this goes back to the biblical prophets. If you're not kind of questioning your congregation about are they doing enough politically, socially, help the world, help make the world a better place, take care of the, the homeless and the needy, and, and you're just trying to make people feel good all the time, then maybe that's not, you know, the best role for a clergy to play. Sometimes you have to upset the apple cart a bit, you know, and stir people to think outside their their worldview. So I do think clergy have a difficult role to play. And the task of every minister or rabbi is to kind of take the temperature of their congregation and see where the congregation is at and see where you can possibly push a few buttons without getting too many people upset. In addition to what you do in Cranford, I believe you're also involved in several other Jewish organizations that serve a wider area. Tell me a little bit about that. When I was 17, I lived in Denver, Colorado for all of 10 months. It was my senior year of high school, and I became involved with the Anti-Defamation League, 
Mountain State's office as a high school intern. I was there full time. I went to one AP history class because I had pretty much finished my requirements in Florida where I had my other three years of high school. And I just needed to be present in the public school system for a year to graduate. But I had pretty much finished most of my coursework. So I was able to accept an internship provided through the Denver Public Schools at the Anti-Defamation League. In recent years, I've been concerned about anti-Semitism. So I became engaged when I was on Long Island with the New York office. And now it's a joint New York, New Jersey region. And I'm on the advisory board for all of New York and New Jersey. And I chair a new program that I helped to create called the Rabbinic Advisory Council of this New York, New Jersey region, where we brief rabbis on issues relating to anti-Semitism from the annual audit of ADL every year, which describes and records all the major anti-Semitic events. You probably can guess that New Jersey having among the larger Jewish populations in the United States, New York and New Jersey, uh, actually rank one and three with California ranking second now in the number of anti-Semitic events in the past two years. So I'm very engaged in that. And I'm also very involved with the Jewish Federation of Metro West New Jersey, because I've always had an interest in Israel and providing for the needs of our Jewish people in Israel. So I sit on our essentially sister city committee, it's called Partnership, where we provide funding toward, and this was an area affected by the massacre that took place on October the 7th. Ofakim is one of our partnership areas where we provide a number of programs for a community. It's called the periphery in Israel. It's near the Gaza Strip. It's not a large city. There isn't a lot of English spoken there, and we're doing a number of programs to help public school students learn English, for instance, uh, also adults learn English so that they can have greater opportunities for education and employment in Israeli society. I want to talk a little bit about what is going on in Israel and Gaza right now. This is being recorded at the end of November 2023. So we are at this particular point in time still in the midst of the ceasefire. Tell me how what has happened and what is happening in Israel is affecting both you and the congregation, if you would, please. Well, the, the massacre that took place on the Sabbath and second to last day of our Jewish holidays on October 7th was uh, a nightmare for the Jewish people. I believe it has had several effects. One is it has led many uh, American Jews to become more engaged with Israel and more concerned because this was the largest massacre of Jewish people since the end of World War II, since the Holocaust that ended uh, on May 15th, 1945, um, the largest number of Jews killed in one day. And people are deeply upset by it, by the taking of hostages, by the killing, raping, uh, and murder of so many people. And, you know, now we're dealing with seeing release of some of the hostages. But at the same time, for someone like me who always wanted to see Jews and Arabs living together, it's very difficult because uh, what we have seen, I take you back to the last days of the Clinton administration, and anyone can read President Clinton's memoirs and book. He was trying to literally the last, till the day before the inauguration, 
uh, of the next president to try to do a deal with the Palestinians to create a state, you know, on the West Bank and Gaza. And it didn't happen. Uh, Yasser Arafat refused to sign the deal. And so we're just dealing with ongoing conflict. And I think many, I'll speak for myself and just say, I would like the Jewish people to live in peace and to be left alone and not have uh, it subjected to terror all the time. And at the same time, I wish for the Palestinians to create a society that's based on building the potential of their state, if they were to have one, and focus on the needs of their people and not be in constant conflict with the people of Israel. But I don't see that happening. That's the sad part. This war has kind of, I think, shaken many of us who had hoped over the last 25 years for peace to wonder if there can ever be peace, because you, in order to have peace, you have to have a partner. And it's not clear who the partner is. It's not clear that the Palestinian Authority can be the partner because there's still violence in the West Bank and there are huge numbers of cells of terrorists under the control of the Palestinian Authority. And even though they do work with Israel uh, on a number of security arrangements, you know, it's not clear that just having the Palestinian Authority, for instance, take over Gaza would be successful in terms of eliminating the terror threat to the people of Israel. But for me, I just want the people of Israel to live in their land, to have relationships with people of all religions and all backgrounds. Israel's a democratic state. There are almost 2 million Israeli Arabs who live in the state of Israel who are citizens, and many of them are proud to be Israeli. And there are Arabs serving in the Israeli army and the Israeli police. And I want to see Israel flourish, but I also had hoped that one day there would be a Palestinian state. Uh, and just one other point, since it happened just two days ago, I can tell you that the reaction I had to the shooting of three Palestinian young men in, you know, in Vermont, you know, was one of deep anger that someone would shoot these three students, I believe they're students, who were just taking a walk the other night in Vermont. That to me goes against everything that I believe in and everything that I believe our country stands for. So I care about that as much. But at the same time, I just would like the world to stop being so angry with Israel and angry with Jewish people and attacking Jewish people for our beliefs and our faith. Before we wrap up, Rabbi, I wanted to ask you about one other experience that you've had that is unusual, I guess is the best way of putting it. You've been the chaplain, the guest chaplain in both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Tell me a little bit about what that experience was like and how you had that opportunity. So I began my career in a congregation about the same size as my current congregation in Bowie, Maryland. It was a Levittown, Bowie, uh, Levitt built, who built Levittown, Pennsylvania, and Levittown, Long Island, built Bowie, modern city of Bowie in 1961, 62. And the small synagogue there, I became its longest serving rabbi in 1985. Um, the synagogue has since merged with another congregation in Annapolis, Maryland. And being literally 90 miles door to door from the White House uh, was an opportunity to, to be in Washington a lot. My congressman was, and until he recently stepped down from leadership, was a number two ranking Democratic congressman, Steny Hoyer, who was a frequent guest at our synagogue and, and 
a wonderful congressman. I also had the opportunity as his guest to be present when King Hussein of Jordan and Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin spoke to a joint session of Congress, two world leaders at one time. That has never happened before since, I don't believe. Uh, it was Steny Hoyer who invited me to give the prayer in the House, and it was the late Senator Barbara Mikulski who invited me to give the prayer in the Senate. I think they were within a year of each other. And of course, that was a different time. That was the 1990s. And when I showed up at Capitol Hill and I showed my letter, that was the chaplain for the day, they said, Rabbi, that's your parking spot. And it was literally right up against the Capitol building. You know that oh, no wow. one can park mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. Capitol anymore. I mean, and there's a whole new visitor center and there's underground parking. I literally parked my car up against the limestone of the building. Wow. And it was a different day, a different age. There is a paid chaplain for the House and the Senate. And he invited me to have breakfast with him after the prayer. And it was just a great day. It was a great opportunity. It's in the Capitol record. And uh, I, I do have copies of it as well. And uh, I was just very honored. And I also gave the prayer in the Maryland State Senate three or four times. I was very close with my team of four Democratic Irish Catholic representatives, <laughs> the senator and the and legislature and the House delegates were all Catholic. They were all Irish. Very similar, I think, in, in makeup to Cranford, uh, Bowie, Maryland. You know, it's very, I think Cranford has traditionally been a community with a lot of Irish and Italian immigrants in it. And uh, Bowie was as well and had just had a wonderful 10 years as the rabbi of that synagogue. Well, Rabbi Paul Kerbel, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me here on Cranford Radio. We've been speaking with Rabbi Paul Kerbel. He is the rabbi from Temple Bethel Mechor Hayim. And again, Rabbi, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you.